Cool Uncorked. Um, we have some some of our favorite guests with us, us this week. But before we get to that, Greg, I haven't seen you since the last time we were doing this. You must have been busy. Well, uh, I lived through the winter apocalypse in Texas. So, right. so you missed that, but uh, it was it wasn't fun. Uh, you might notice regular regular viewers might notice that I'm uh, not at home where I usually podcast from, but I'm from the office, and you can tell uh, when we introduce Professor Ann Bowman, she she also you will, you will notice the similarity in furniture, <laughs> and, and so you'll get a good sense of what the Bush School offices look like. <laughs> So, did you? Are you in the office because you uh, your heat never got turned back on, or are you just working late? No, I, I I had a I had a four to five Zoom, and I couldn't couldn't get home in time. So I, I mean a a, a five to six Zoom, uh, and uh, also also had a four to five Zoom, but I had a five to six Zoom, and so uh, uh, I, I decided that I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't try to break any of uh, our municipal regulations on on auto speed, and I would just. <laughs> I would just uh, podcast from the office. It does well, it does limit my uh, my my usual pre podcast uh, 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 routines. Routines would be the best way to put it. But uh, I think in this case, it's the best choice. Well, send your best to uh, send the best to your wife for uh, 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 sharing us with you this evening, late into the evening, and thanks for uh, for joining us. And uh, it has been. Quite some time because we did have to cancel our last recording um, because it was during the enrolling blackouts and I was worried about you all. I I couldn't have joined you because uh, the power kept going on and off. Yeah, well I'm glad we can do it tonight. And um, let's go ahead and and, I, and and introduce our guest. I said I wasn't going to do this, but uh, here we have Dr. Ann Bowman. So you can see how how her. Her name is there that unfortunately covers up her face, so we're not going to use our taglines tonight. Uh, Dr. Bowman, thanks for being with us again. It's nice to see you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it has been quite some time. I'm excited to talk state and local government. And since you were with us last, the audience must know that now uh, Professor Bowman is her own social media star. And we're going to come right right back to that because I want to introduce one Dr. Rob Greer. Ah, I knew I wasn't going to be able to say Robert. I really tried, but just for uh, effect. I don't, I don't feel like you really tried that hard, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I needed to have it in front of me where it said Robert, and I had a chance at uh, actually reading it. Um, but uh, it's good to see you too. Thanks for being here, sir. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. These are yeah, fun. Always, always a pleasure to get to chat with the two of you. I, uh, I noticed, and uh, I sent this to Greg, but the last time I believe the last time the four of us did this was at downtown Uncorked, mm -hmm. and we would have been sitting in our booth. And our booth, sadly, showed up on Facebook Marketplace and is being sold. Um, oh, no. We are not uh, not going to be using it either at all or in that location anymore. So our booth of our wonderful conversations is uh, another item turned to uh, Facebook Marketplace. Another we should have signed it and we should have done something, carved our initials in it. So. We should have held an auction. Uh, me and my yeah, wife, are we going to bid on it? And I was like, no, I don't think we need to bid on it. Although, I hate, you know, not to be that guy, I'm pretty sure we did one of these on Zoom, which was been after. Uh, I think it was too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I just didn't, I didn't know if you were using that as a ploy to talk about. Uh, it was a ploy. 
And we did, yeah. we actually did gather there, I think, once, the four of us. But you're right. In the spring of last year, we did join again. So this is why we have guests, because uh, they keep us honest. And that's why I appreciate you. <laughs> Honestly, it could have gone either way. 2020 was a blur. We either did it or we didn't do it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really be certain one way or the other. I wasn't completely sure that we actually got together last year, but I think we did now that you said it. So it's good to see you all again in your virtual spaces. Uh, before we jump into our uh, regularly scheduled uh, uh, program events, I did uh, want to highlight that Dr. Ann Bowman is also helping out with a Bush School uh, social Q&A social media series uh, with her uh, Texas legislature capstone with current and former students, as I understand it. And would you like to tell us what you have going on on a whole separate Bush School channel? Sure. I'm... Um... I'm simply the uh, introductory person for the, the kickoff to it. Subsequently, I'm not involved uh, at, at all, and, uh, and, and, that's, and that's fine. Uh, but, but what's happened is the Bush School's reached out to a number of uh, former Capstone students who are still working in the legislature, as well as the current set of students, to just talk about their experiences, what they, what they are doing, the impact they're having, and uh, just, it's it's really a delightful. I've only seen one so far, but uh, but it really is just a wonderful way to engage uh, these students in you know real world policy making, and it's uh, it's exciting for them. And the cool thing is they do this for a semester as part of the capstone, but the group they're interviewing uh, has has just gotten the you know the legislative bug or whatever, and uh, they've stayed on, or they've gone away and come back. That's so, I mean, there's nothing more fascinating than uh, than a legislative uh, institution. I know some of you may like the executive branch, but I'm telling you, it's all about the legislative branch. So you heard it here first. <laughs> I'm sure gonna. I'm sure that will be a theme that is echoed throughout the evening. <laughs> well, seriously, yeah. I mean, the yeah. legislative branch does the work. That you know, governors are show ponies. What can I say? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the Texas legislature works so hard that they only have to be in session six months every two years. They are. I think we call that efficiency. Oh, uh, efficiency. Yeah. I feel like we need an economist with us this evening to, uh, to relate all the efficiency gains from only right. having the legislature. Talk about <laughs> rational behavior. And, it, and there's a good thing there isn't any extremely recent events that would suggest that we need more time spent on regulatory issues in the state of Texas. Uh, I think we can all agree that six months every two years is plenty of time to handle yeah. all the issues yeah. in the state. Yeah. yeah. No, it's hands off. You know, hands off is the right approach to almost everything. You know, That's hands off. Now, should I say masks off? So. <laughs> well, and this was, I think, our former governor's take, right? Uh, this was Rick Perry's take is uh, we'd rather not have electricity than have oversight by the federal government. Um, which, yeah. Uh, I I must have missed the uh, the poll of Texans where he, that he used to get to that conclusion um, that uh, we he volunteered us all to go without power even longer than we already did just to be disconnected from the national grid. I uh, I, I checked my spam folder. I just couldn't find it. Uh, I don't know what what happened there. Well, perhaps perhaps he was out of state, like our attorney general and one of our senators when all of this happened. Uh, and and, <laughs> and and half of the ERCOT board? Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. Oh, man. All right. We are getting warmed up in a hurry today. I like it. Um, so I'm not saying anything about you, Justin. I mean, <laughs> not being it. 
<laughs> Speaking of out of state. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, nice. we got a, a foot of snow and, um, you know, we kept our power. It turns out. And we could drive the next morning. It also turns out. Um, and, and the interesting thing is uh, El Paso kept its power. And what, what distinguishes El Paso from the rest of Texas? Well, it's so far west, it's not on the Texas grid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we make choices and we and choices have consequences. Yeah. Well, they had some pretty serious consequences, all kind of uh, laughs and joking aside. It was really, I was actually quite worried about uh, all of you and my family and nieces and nephews and uh, all the people that would have been struggling to find shelter and those that had shelter struggling to stay warm. Uh, people, this is what, what I've said to our students. This is really, this highlights why governance uh, really matters, <laughs> the whole thing. Um, because if we botch these, some of these tasks, people people, people die. Um, and we, you know, it's made us a little bit of a kind of a punchline joke to all of our colleagues and uh, professional connections throughout, throughout the world. I mean, it really has real, all kinds of consequences. But today we have with us, as timing would have it, some of our state and local government uh, experts. Uh, two and a half, I think, actually. I'm, I'm only going to claim half expertise in local government, but uh, may, may, maybe three by a broad conceptualization. And um, we actually had already had this planned out before Texas did have some of these challenges. But one of the things that I'd like to, we've already jumped into, but I want to talk about this notion of the fact that our infrastructure really did kind of fail in the in the state of Texas uh, when weather's got when the weather got really cold, and we could talk about who's to blame and and some of the challenges, and I'd I'd love to hear anyone's thoughts on that. But this really highlights, I think, a failure to wrestle with climate change, um, is my real takeaway. Right, being the state that full of politicians that went on and on. This is a dirty word. This is a dirty word. The, these infrastructure uh, capabilities needed to be modeling and taking into account more extreme variations on temperature. I mean, we needed to be tackling this head on, but instead we were, were living in a place that so many of our politicians have spent their time completely denying this, I guess, in kind of allegiance with the oil industry. So uh, what is, what's your all take on what's the core issue here about how we ended up without electricity in Texas in 2021? Ah, anything? That's, I mean, that's a big question that I, I, I think we're, we're still unraveling, right? Uh, I, I don't know that we, we have all the information about all the things that went wrong, um, but, but a lot of things went wrong. But to your, to your point about, about climate change, um, one of the narratives that's, that's spun around is that this is a, you know, once every hundred year storm and the cost to winterize the system or to to be able to with, withstand the extreme temperatures that we saw for the prolonged period of time would just be far too costly. Um, and, and I think that's uh, a disingenuous and, and false narrative um, because we these aren't as unlikely or as extreme as I, I think some are, are led to believe. We had power grid failures 10 years ago in 2011 uh, with, with some rolling blackouts. Now, not nearly as severe or as prolonged as we saw two weeks ago. 
Um, but, uh, but following that, there was a lot of reports. There are a lot of studies <laughs> that showed all of the things that the, that ERCOT needed to do, the Texas system needed to do to prepare and, and be able to withstand further uh, of these events. Um, and, and then ERCOT didn't do hardly any of them from what I can tell. Uh, they don't have to because they're not connected to that, that, uh, national grid as, as we mentioned before. Um, and so they, they're free to sort of enforce whatever regulations that the state sees fit. And uh, so it's, it's really, it's in some ways similar to the hurricane situation that, that we see um, in, in the Houston area where what was once a hundred year storm is not a hundred year storm when you see it every three years, right? Or every 10 yeah. years or whatever the case is. Um, and, and that means that um, certainly it has implications for long-term strategic planning um, and things like what types of regulations do you use, uh, but also things like how you know, should we go about paying for these things and what type of insurance do we need and um, a lot of sort of nuts and bolts details about, about how we run our critical infrastructure uh, that, that the state is really has, has you know, let, let market forces uh, take the wheel and uh, we're seeing some of the consequences there. Dr. Bowman, any insights here? Yeah, I'm... Uh... I, I guess what I'd say, I don't know, I guess I'd say I'd probably shift the focus from ERCOT a bit because they're managers, they're not decision, they're, they're decision makers in some sense, but they're really managers who've been set up by the Public Utilities Commission. So I'd turn to those folks first and, uh, and, and point a finger uh, as well as to the legislature and the governor. But um, uh, one of the things that's impressed me was how close we were to something that I think they call a black star event. Uh, if if the power the power was the grid was down or whatever the phrase is, and I may not be using it correctly, but for four minutes, I think four minutes and twenty three seconds, I think was the, was the was the number. And if it had been you know a couple more minutes, everything would have shut down, and it would have taken not just days, weeks to bring systems back up. So I mean, we were really close to a situation that would have been disastrous and of course it's disastrous to the folks who didn't have power for a week and don't have water still and have uh, uh, conditions that make it very difficult for them uh, lives were lost so it was, it was very serious and it could have been so much worse yeah. and so I, I guess I guess what I'd really what I'd really say is is it's time to um, take a good look at how we structure the system and restructure it think again I mean this deregulatory mania, uh, has got to be re-examined, I would argue, uh, to uh, to design a better system, one that's going to function when when situations like this arise. Yeah, I, I mean, I echo what Rob and Ann said, but it, and I, you know, it's fun to beat up on the Texas politicians. It's fun to beat up on politicians everywhere, but we should probably note that California, which whose politics is the opposite of Texas in many ways, they also have these infrastructure problems uh, around climate change, right? With the wildfires and parts of the coastal highway falling into the ocean. And I, I mean, this is not something that's unique to us as a red state. I think some of the elements of it are unique to us as a red state, the, the, the deregulation, uh, mantra, but uh, I think that you know, uh, Robin Ann's students are going to have to get really creative in terms of public administration to figure out how how both blue states and red states can 
can make their infrastructures more robust and resilient. And maybe $300 billion, $350 billion might happen. Yeah, that's but before we transition too much, right, I think I think to Anne's earlier point about how interesting the legislature is, right, there's only so much that public administrators can do, right? Um when they're when their hands are tied by by the the legislative framework that, that the state provides, um, you know, then then you're you're right. We 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 certainly need to be thinking creatively. Um, uh, trying to optimize resources, come up with different solutions um, within those bounds, but but in some ways, right? It's it's too little, too late, <laughs> and uh, for for that for that sort of tweaking around the edges, um, and and we we need some much bigger movement um, towards towards addressing climate change, um, and and again, you know, we're we're focused on power at the moment, but all sorts of other critical infrastructure, right? We could we could go to this path uh, for our water systems and for our transportation systems and for our broadband systems, right? Uh, and and I, I think uh, at, for most, not all states are are equally bad, but right, where as a country we're not particularly good at maintaining critical infrastructure to the levels that that you know we all think we have it, um, and so we're then we're surprised when it starts to fail. Um, because, you know, we're, we're a, a rich country with, you know, lots of rich country problems and yet we still have crumbling infrastructure. Uh, and, and it's not, it's not on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, but, but we, enough of these events, right. And it just highlights just how close we are to those edge. Like, like, and uh, Dr. Bowman was mentioning, but, you know, minutes away from just complete and utter lack of, of electricity in the state. Right. That's, that's terrifying. Well, and one of the things that makes all of this tough, uh, that is one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure we addressed it. It's it's just really frustrating that then the governor goes on television and tries to misdirect people. I find that really disheartening and really frustrating when people are kind of freezing in the streets. <laughs> he uses that as an opportunity to say it's about renewable energies, <laughs> um, which is uh, counterproductive in lots of ways, but also counterproductive to what some of the needed solutions are to help in the continue in, in battling climate change to begin with. Yeah, so, just to clarify for any of your uh, listeners, wind turbines were not the sole problem <laughs> and, and is not, are not to blame for a week-long rolling blackout in the state of Texas. That's just <laughs> no basis in reality. I received multiple phone calls from multiple people um, with, uh, with the exact same tagline within about 48 hours, and it made me want to scream. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true to uh to greg's point that this is something and and to and to robin's and point rob and ann's points um that uh you know there's a lot of infrastructure challenges here and one of the things um that's made this worse is states you know have balanced budget requirements often they've seen some decline in particular during uh the pandemic um, not as bad as we thought to begin with, but still lots of additional spending and revenues are down. This presents all sorts of other types of spending priority challenges for states. Uh, I did throw up the 350, which I'm going to do briefly again, because I'd like to be able to see Anne's face, but 
um, as part of the what the House of Representatives is considering. Um, there's about $350 billion in consideration uh, for state and local local projects. Is this a is this a tip kind of by the House? Is it in the right general direction? Is any of this to to anyone's knowledge, you know, helping out with some of the infrastructure issues? Is this more still dealing with, you know, responding to the fact that we're in a global pandemic and just basic stabilization efforts? Uh, and you look like you had something to say there. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, the House has passed the bill, so okay, we're on to the next. But before we get there, um, this this is fascinating. I mean, one of the things about the 350 is that it's flexible. It's uh, it's not earmarked. It's not well, not earmarked isn't the right word. It's not targeted to specific. You must spend twelve dollars on this and you know four thousand on that. Uh, local, state, and local governments it's unrestricted aid, and that's and that's a big deal. And that's what they were saying about before was well, we need money to not just not just address some of the, the COVID related issues, but we need money to maybe tackle some of these other challenges that we're facing. And you, you were right that that the the kind of the recessionary effect of, of, of the pandemic was not did not have the have the impact on state budgets the way they thought it would. Um, I mean I know Texas was projecting I, I don't remember how many how many billion it was, but it's far from a billion than it was. I think it's now around one billion uh, shortfall. Um, and so so there's a real question about the amount, obviously, 350. I mean, the Democrats like it, uh, but um, you know, as it goes over to the Senate, that'll that'll probably be discussed. And then whether there should be some strings attached, whether there should be some mechanisms. I mean, you know, for those of you who are, and for all of you who are younger than I, um, the um, uh, we used to have something called general revenue sharing where state and local governments got money from the feds with no strings attached it was based on a formula population as well as a couple of other items a couple of other factors in the formula but it was it was unrestricted money and congress eventually did away with that first for states then for localities because they weren't getting any credit for it i mean they were just giving money to these state and local governments to spend any way they wanted that New fire truck didn't say provided by a member of Congress. So, and as I recall, that was a one of the the many governmental innovations by the Nixon administration. Uh, remarkably, yes. Uh -huh. We can, yep. Yeah, that and the trip to China, we can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and the the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water yeah. Act, the EPA. Yep. Yeah. 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 Richard, yeah. Richard, Richard Nixon, secret progressive. Yeah. <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, so let me kind of close it out by saying that there will be a lot of discussion in the Senate about the number, you know, the 350, and and the issue of whether some of that money should be targeted. You know, is it too much money, and should it should it be unrestricted, or should it have some some um, targets for how it's spent? And well, uh, Joe Manchin will be the player there, right? Uh, Joe Manchin, uh, Arizona, which always gives us Kristen Cinema, I guess. But I think there are a couple of other folks who are, are raising some concerns with it as well. So, on the Democratic side. Yeah, I think. Thanks, man. Yeah, I think I, I would just add that the you know the three fifty number jumps out, but um, the whole bill actually ends up being more than that. If I if I understood it correctly, it was another 130, I believe, uh, that was aid directly to schools. Um, and right when you're talking about local governments, you know, you, you have to talk about schools. <laughs> and and so uh, and then of course all of the 
additional money going into the unemployment system gets funneled through the states, right? The, the unemployment insurance program is a state-run program. And so if we're talking about money going to state and locals, uh, you know, something that, that the CARES Act didn't do a lot of was provide some of the, uh, you know, unrestricted funds uh, that Dr. Bowman was mentioning that, that they really need, some, some more than others, right? So we, we talk about the impact, the revenue impact of, of state and local governments not being as severe as we thought. And that's that's true for a lot of places. It's certainly true for Texas. Not true for all places, right? Um, and so some some certainly hit harder than others. So I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush and say that everybody's coming out of last year in in okay shape. Uh, I think there are some lo local governments that are are really scrambling. Um, and then you know just to connect some of these ideas here, the the first thing that most local governments cut was maintenance for infrastructure. Now, deferred maintenance. Per capital expenditures is, is one of the first things that gets cut in, in budget shortfalls, right? You, you free your vacant positions and you cut your your maintenance uh, as kind of like budgeting step one. So um, if we if we want to think long term about both state of our critical infrastructure and the fiscal health of our, our state and local governments, uh, right? We're, we we need money in a lot of different pots. Um, and, uh, and so the unrestricted funds helps, helps do that, right? Depending on what communities need, they get to redirect those funds. Now, um, you know, but, but I, you know, to a larger point that the, the 350 number is nice, but it's the whole package ends up being considerably more. <sighs> well, any other thoughts on that? Anybody has? Greg, you have anything on the on this kind of a broader packet or anything as it relates to funding for state and local? Or are you going to tell me it's too much money? No, I'm I'm you know I'm no longer a fiscal conservative. Uh, I, I you know I think that we should spend what we need. Uh, infrastructure spending, school spending, these are investments. And you know. State and local governments are the ones who pay the firefighters and the teachers and the policemen and the, and, and the municipal workers and all. And, and, you know, we're on the verge of coming out of this pandemic, I think, and hope over the next several months. And, uh, and, and we can't have another wave of unemployment because state and local governments can't afford to to pay workers. I think we've already seen workers at the state and local level laid off because of the budget crunches. So I, I we should spend the money to get over this pandemic. Yep. And then we should and then we should think about taxes because somebody's got to pay for this. And and rich people like me should pay for it. That's right. Yeah, I think Elizabeth Warren mentioned something about a new tax. Um, a wealth tax, I believe she called it. Right. It doesn't right. apply to us. For those, those are for people who make who, whose net worth is over fifty million. Oh, and I just missed that. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is a what's a positive net worth? This concept to me of of net worth. <laughs> so. Uh, Greg highlighted something that I'd like to kind of move towards that uh, sticking with this notion of investing in cities and states is uh, we are, as as I alluded to at the, at the beginning of the podcast, there was an announcement today that the Biden administration, I think, expects to have enough vaccines for all adults by the end of May, I think. Um, 
was the announcement. So uh, maybe we are. The numbers have been dropping uh, incredibly um, quickly, um, up from a high of 250 to three, you know, close to near 300,000, down to below 50,000, and down to below near 1,000 deaths, which still horrible is uh, significantly down from our are high and today the governor of Texas um, announced that we're far enough along in the recovery process that uh, he no longer thinks we need masks and that places should be open at 100% capacity. Uh, and I would, maybe that's a little premature, um, but uh, aside from that, you know, we are going to be entering into this different kind of world where we have maybe the coronavirus a little bit more under control. Businesses are gonna be continuing to open back up. We're uh, going to move towards whatever this new normal is and um so what i was wondering is what are the immediate uh and, ad and in instead of this just uh, initial funding to get through what kind of upcoming challenges do the two of you or does the whole panel see for cities and states uh, as we leave uh, hopefully leave the pandemic uh well i think everybody wants to back up a, a little bit, um, I was trying to pull up the numbers. I think Texas only has something like 7% of the population uh, vaccinated. I think we rank somewhere like, I don't know, like 48 out of 50 states in, in vaccine rollout. Yeah. So uh, it's it's kind of the cart before the horse here to, to talk about coming out of, uh, of the pandemic with, with vaccine in hand. When uh, when we're we're nowhere close to reaching any of the herd immunity that the CDC talks about necessary for kind of going going back to, to normal business here, um, so I don't. There's not a lot. There's not a lot to say here other than I, the other states with governors wanting to run for president have done it. So you know I think we need to do it too. Um, but I don't know that any of this is, is sort of uh, post-pandemic. We need to, uh, uh, you know, transition from from our you know, last year's policies to a new set of policies to 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 get back to business. I mean, that's that's what they want to do. I, I just don't think that our our actual vaccine implementation warrants that kind of um, policy shift. Um, yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, I don't think we're quite there. Oh, yet. No, Rob, I mean. Just the sheer enormous force of American manufacturing capability is over a number of months going to produce hundreds of millions of doses, right? And and even the most screwed up uh, distribution system will probably get uh, enough to Brazos Valley so we can all get vaccinated. Uh, and so, right, I think I, I agree. We're not talking about two months, but we might be talking about five. Do you think? I mean, is that is that unrealistic? I mean, I mean, maybe. Um, right. What, what has what will change in the next two months from the last two months? We get one more vaccine. Right. Which is uh, which is good. Uh, and a one shot, which which cuts down on the number of people that you have to run through through the, the vaccination sites. Uh, so that that certainly will shift whatever time, whatever sort of, um, you know, adaptation curve that was needed for establishing distribution systems has has been established. And, and so I, I think you're right. I, we, we are certainly going to make more progress over the next three, four five months than we've made over the last two months. Um, 
but I, I don't know how much, right? Uh, and so, and, and, and frankly, I don't know that anybody does, right? This is a, this is a, there's a really high level of uncertainty on, on any of this. And so, um, so I don't, I, I don't think I inherently want to want to put any sort of guess on how many more months until we're, we're sort of, uh, you know, vaccinated 50% of people, let alone close to the 80 to 90 range that we need to be, all right, per CDC sort of recommendations to to be herd, get to herd immunity. I mean, we're at seven, right? Like, we got a long way to go. Um, so, so you know, I, I like the optimism. I, I'm hopeful that that we're able to, but some, there's a, there's several bottlenecks, right? And one of those is just personnel, right? It's just number of medical professionals uh, and how much we can work them, <laughs> having, having worked them all to the bone for the last year. Um, so, so I, I, I don't, that's, that's an X factor, right? I think there's a number of uh, potential bottlenecks, but, you know, to, to give Texas some credit, um, some counties are doing very well um, and, uh, you know, utilizing things like, you know, the, the Texas Motor Speedway up in North Texas, uh, instead of running NASCAR races, they're running, you know, people through the vaccination site and they're getting, you know, tens of thousands of people done a week. So, you know, it's, it's, it is possible. And, and I, I think we've got some, we made some really good progress. Um, I just think it's, it's really too early to, to, to put any certainty around it. Yeah, I think what, what I would um, to add to that is one of the challenges of this has really been the kind of the, you know, that flickering light at the end of the tunnel and it keeps flickering and then, you know, and then it becomes kind of moving farther away. And, and we thought, well, it would just take this long and then it's going to take this long and now it's going to take longer. And I think that's, that's been a source of tremendous frustration for folks who are now just saying, forget, you know, whatever, whatever they're saying, um, <laughs> I'm, going, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm just, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. Um, and I think, I think, uh, you know, a lack of leadership at the national level has certainly been a factor in this. And at the state level, you do, of course, get the variation in the, the, the distribution networks and uh, the clout or whatever it might take for certain states to get proportionately more or less uh, of the vaccine. Uh, the distribution networks we got, I don't, I don't know, I've, I'm kind of assuming Texas might have uh, a greater proportion of, of vaccine deniers than, uh, than some other states. So, so I, you know, I keep thinking, <laughs> uh, I'm way along that optimism trail, and I keep thinking that uh, sometime this summer, sometime this summer, magically it will disappear. Sorry, I had to say that. <laughs> um, uh, no, that uh, sometime this summer, we will see. Uh, yeah, again, I, I have no empirical evidence for this. I just, it's just, a, it's, I think it's actually a hope to kind of keep, keep doing all these things. Well, in Texas, it's opening up now. We're done. It's over. Yeah. No masks. It's over. It's already done. We got to figure out how we're going to survive in a post-pandemic world because it's over. Didn't you see? Yeah, I'm assuming, yeah, but I'm assuming that some local governments will defy uh, the state's mandate and, uh, or relaxation. The university, et cetera, I think. I mean, we're still doing um, a whole lot of uh, online teaching or remote teaching in the fall. So, um, And we're, yes, we're also at the university uh, basically going to have the same kind of classroom delivery as we've had this spring, which is social distanced and masked up. This is what we've been told anyway. Half of our class is remote. Uh, so there's there's not there we might be we might be somewhat optimistic, but there are some people who are pessimists. 
yeah, that's me. So it's and, and it's also right to to bring it back a little bit uh, to to the local government perspective. It it puts a lot of local governments in states like Texas that that are going you know re re reviewing and repealing their mask ordinances and state level uh, you know social distancing or or occupation standards, um, and and then giving the option right. Oh, local governments always have the option to to implement their own mask ban or do their own social distancing requirements. Um, which which really shifts a lot of that political pressure back to, to local governments, uh, gives them uh, gives a, a much more fragmented implementation of any real precautions. And so you'll get some cities that will maintain their mask mandates and some that won't. Um, and so the, the, then it opens up the question of, okay, any progress that we have been making, how much do we go backwards, right? How much more community spread do we have without that? And then how does that interact with the ability to get people vaccinated and so on and so forth? Um, I've already heard from, from the local school district, right? They're, they're scrambling now to figure out what they're going to try to do. Do they, do they still enforce the masks and make the kids wear the mask in school? Because they've been relatively successful with few cases. Um, and they, now they're in the local school districts in the decision of, you know, either facing a lot of parents who don't want their kids to have to wear masks um, or keeping them in place uh, for to for the rest of the school year, right? Or I mean, or, or repealing that, and then potentially having more community spread in the schools, having to go back virtual or send more kids home, right? And that's that's a, an administration um, a nightmare. It's a very difficult situation to put local school districts and, and city leaders uh, in right now. I think our own leaders here in the Brazos Valley, the mayor of College Station, the mayor of Bryan, our county judge all said that if the governor lifted the mask mandate, they would lift the mask mandate. If I, if I read the, our local paper correctly. Yeah, and then on the business side, I think I saw that HEB was going to recommend but not enforce masks, right, at the, for the local grocery uh, store chain. So, um, you know. I'm sorry, but that, that's not a change. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, local grocery stores and which there are plenty of, <laughs> I don't know, whatever word you want to use. That's, uh... Well, it's, um... see the problem, the problem in Texas, and I, I don't want to belabor this, but the problem in Texas is if you're Harris County, right, or if you're the city of Dallas, or you're the city of San Antonio, and you say, well, we would like to keep a public mask mandate for, uh, for, for businesses, for, for, you know, people who are, you know, anytime you have to go inside, we want to keep a mask mandate. You can almost rest assured that the attorney general of Texas will sue the city. Uh, because, you know, that's who he is and that's what he does. Mm -hmm. So the idea that there's any kind of Texas, I mean, the, the, the ethos of Texas is we don't want outsiders to tell us what to do. So we don't like the federal government. We don't want to be hooked up to their grid and all that kind of thing. And, and you know, we've had uh, three uh, attorney generals in a row, I think, in, in Texas who, who define their job as suing the federal government. But when it comes to actual local initiative, cities, counties, being able to adopt their own resolution on these questions, it's absolutely clear that Austin does not want that to happen. Uh, and so we are actually quite centralized in terms of, in, in terms of uh, things like local mandates. 
which I think is unfortunate because we, we've had over 100 cases in, uh, for the last two days in, in Brazos County. And uh, just for comparative purposes, that's relatively high for us. And, and we're so close to the finish line. Here's my optimism like Anne's. We're so close to the finish line for us to, to, to give up the disciplines that so many of us have, have adopted for a year now, uh, I, I think would, would be uh, really sad. But it just keeps everybody from thinking about the energy problem. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to create a lot of really interesting research on, you know, sort of the time series and 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 uh, panel data on different different actions taken by different states, different localities, and consequences. Um, it's going to be, it's it, it's going to be a great uh, research, a very fruitful research topic. Not a happy one, but a fruitful one. <laughs> One which you can pursue under the tutelage of Dr. Ann Bowman by applying to the Bush School MPSA program. <laughs> Is that where we were supposed to put the plug in? I, I, I missed it. I missed my cue. Uh, that's that's what we rely on the MPSA leadership for, Rob. We rely on we <laughs> got for us you and then Greg and the IA leadership, and then there's me and Ann over here. We rely on you for that. Sure. <laughs> So one other topic I wanted to, to hit on and kind of independent of uh, how long or how, you know, how much the state is able to, to stick it to us as we're trying to uh, get over this final hurdle. What are some of the, what, uh, what are some of the future challenges of local governments that the two of you see? I mean, it seems to be a different world than what you might've told me uh, a year ago, but maybe it is the same world. I mean, has the, has the way in which the pandemic has shifted so many things, does this illustrate new challenges for local uh, local governments in, in the two of you's mind? Any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I have some thoughts. All right. So I was, in, I was involved in a podcast uh, and with a group of um, uh, local government scholars and all studying different things. And so, but, but all involved in local governments, uh, some more urban than others. We got often you know, on the podcast, a little debate about urban rural, but they came up with uh, seven things. And these are just general categories. These are, you know, we could, we could jump into any of these categories and talk for hours. So the first is, is local government finance and economic development, which we've kind of talked about the finance part to, to a certain extent. Uh, local government management, the real concern over HR and what's happening to public employees and, and, and what, what the future looks like and big discussion about telework, et cetera, and those sorts of things. Uh, intergovernmental relations was another, uh, but primarily the relationship of local governments to its state, to their states, um, uh, which is again, something, something we've hit on. Um, the issue of collaboration, reaching out to the third sector, to the nonprofit world and, and um, increasing the interaction uh, with nonprofits and coming up with um, sort of, I mean, Rick Fiox sort of self-organizing federalism, the idea at the local level or at the metro level, figuring out combinations of interactions that, that work better at providing public services. Um, the issue of public engagement, how we're going to involve the public in, in all matters of local government, whether, you know, again, uh, you know, 
we're doing things like televising city council meetings. Well, you know, how, how much farther can we go with that? How much, what, how much can technology help us with engaging the public more, uh, more effectively? Um, the issue of social equity came up as another big topic that kind of is infused in all of these, but, but the argument was it's so important that it stands alone as, a, as its own topic, as something that local governments are going to have to grapple with, uh, irrespective of, of things like taxes and services and all that social equity, which is going to have tremendous consequences. And then finally, uh, the issue of institutional design, right? So, uh, so how should we, how should we organize our city government or our county government. I mean, basic things like, you know, council manager structures or mayor council, um, how big should a city council be? Should it run from districts or they should they run at large? What's the most effective way of designing institutions at the local level so that they function better? I mean, I think that's been one of the themes so far this evening is that there have been a number of failures uh, over time. And um, can we do better? Can we can we be more resilient and can we can we do better facing some of these challenges? So, you know, it's, that's 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 kind of a laundry list, a big picture of things uh, that, that we can talk about. But but I thought it was just, uh, you know, some of them are, are, are obvious and we've been talking about them for years. Others are, are getting new prominence. And I think that's kind of exciting, too. So bottom line was this is a great time to study local governments. <laughs> yeah. Rob, do you have some that you, that's a great list, Anne, thank you. Rob, do you have some you'd like to add before we jump into kind of a discussion for a few minutes? So, um, yeah, no, I, I fully agree that all, all of those are, are important and, and have been talked about uh, in various ways, um, both pre and, and sort of during the pandemic, a lot of them were really highlighted, right? So so this issue of that, that we've hit on today about, about some of the interactions between the state and local government that Dr. Bowman uh, brought up, Right and and uh, Greg's comments about the state suing local governments, um, you know this this more frequent tendency of states to use preemption to sort of undermine local governments and what and what they're trying to do um, is not is not isolated to Texas by any stretch of the imagination, right? And and I think we can find lots of examples. Um, and and so the 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 pandemic has highlighted a, a lot of that with you know governors wanting to to say okay we're going to let cities decide on how they're going to roll things out or who's going to be in charge of vaccine distribution or you know r rather than, than taking on some of that leadership and centralizing that at the state level they push it down to the local level um but then but they don't allow local governments the flexibility to sort of adopt policies that they think best serve their their community and so um you know a, a lot of a lot of long-standing issues were really highlighted. It became much the bigger sort of uh, centralized issues in, in, in the last year. Um, and so there's an opportunity, I think, to re-examine some of those relationships um, and uh, come out of this with, with an, an eye towards some of that institutional, um, uh, you know, rethinking how our institutions are structured, which, which was one of the last points uh, on, on Dr. Bowman's list. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I fully agree with a lot of the, the only thing that I'll add, right? So it's, and it's tied up to economic development is just to go back to our, our first point of, about infrastructure, right? Um, infrastructure is one of those things that, that we do get surprising bipartisan support on. Uh, uh, and it was really a missed opportunity under the Trump administration. Every week was supposed to be infrastructure week and then we never quite got there. Um, and so, so um, 
We could talk about hard infrastructure in terms of the actual pipes in the ground and the and electricity generation and things like that. Uh, but we can also talk about soft infrastructure and, and the structures, the planning committees, the social networks that are established um, among states and among local governments uh, that that they use to form these interlocal agreements that was that was on the list that to solve some of these uh, larger regional problems uh, that Dr. Bowman mentioned. Um, and uh, and then a lot of it comes down to to you know what types of infrastructure do we want going forward, um, considering things like climate change, and then how are we going to pay for them, right? Which you know everything goes back to finances. Everybody should know that by now. It's all, uh, you should all study public budgeting and financial management because uh, that's the most important subject to solving any of these problems. Uh, oh, second to management. Thank you very much. Second to management management track head over there. I don't know what this budgeting and finance taking primacy thing is coming from you tonight. <laughs> I, I do I do think that there's, I mean, one of the longer term consequences for cities of all of this is, you know, where people have been speculating that, you know, will be more people will work from home. The old model of everybody coming into the office and working in, in you know, uh, in a single space, usually in an urban setting. You know, we might we might uh, we might not see as much of that. I don't know. This is this is speculation, obviously. But if that's the case, that's going to have serious financial uh, implications for urban governance, because whether you know, like back on you know, a lot of places on the East Coast where I'm from, uh, have a city wage tax, and if not as many people are working in the city. What happens to the financial basis of the city? And even if you're not based on city wage tax, sales taxes in cities, you know, the people are just not buying lunches. They're not buying the kind of the meals that they would be buying if they're working every day from an office in an urban in an urban setting. You know, it's it's we're not going to immediately know that all the consequences of of what we've been through this past year. But I think there might be some indications that it that the po post-pandemic life for cities might be different and the funding of city governance might be something that uh, will come will, will, will come up as, a, as a, an immediate topic over the next few years. Yep, I think, I think public transportation highlights that uh, uh, perfectly, right? Like how we pay for public transportation currently may not be how we need to pay for public transportation going forward. If people aren't willing to pack themselves into subways, right, uh, then we need to rethink how we fund subways, which for many things are underfunded anyway. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Anne had it right at the beginning. Let's, let's revisit general revenue sharing and, uh, and go from there. It'll solve all problems. Yeah, I mean, I think really, one of the challenges, I mean, it's, it's easy to talk about changes and, and, um, and, and things that ought to happen. The challenges are um, uh, will really be actually making that happen. And, and there's so many, uh, there's so many interests involved and everyone, everyone, you know, that, you know, the gasoline tax, let's say, there are interests on one side, there are interests on another, and that's really going to be an interest, uh, a clash of titans when we tackle that one. Um, I mean, seriously, should the state of Texas have an income tax? So I can't, you can't say that out loud. I know. Sorry. Apoplexy. No. Uh, I'm, about to, I'm about to expire. <laughs> so uh, it's why we all moved here in the first place, right? To get away from onerous 
Anyway, my point is, is um, are you uh, announcing uh, your candidacy for governor now? Sure. On that, yeah, Beto and I are gonna, yeah, we're gonna take. <laughs> the um, but my point was just really that it's that it's um, uh, it's going to be interesting when we finally get down to really wrestling with these challenges, and uh, uh, there will be heated debate. Let's just say that heated debate. Well, you know uh, what the the big innovation in public uh, public finance at the city level is going to be spaceports. Greer and I have already got this uh, solved. The big big innovation is going to be spaceports for SpaceX. Elon Musk is making his move uh, to our wonderful state, and there's already a big testing facility in West Texas. There's a lot of desolate area where you could maybe have some rockets without it being so disruptive. And that's not going to help urban finance. <laughs> No. So, so uh, well, management, not finance, management. <laughs> Spaceports will not save cities, but um, right, it's you know the, the pandemic is not the only external influence on on local governments um, challenges and and on their finances, right? So we talk about the gasoline tax, which I think is a really good example. Uh, politically, has been a, a non-starter for years. It's stuck way behind. Uh, where it should be if it if it had kept anywhere close to inflation. Um, but as we see more companies commit to larger proportions of their fleet being electric, um, and and uh, we need to rethink the gasoline tax altogether, right? <laughs> if not that many people buy gasoline for their cars uh, and then drive on the same roads, can we really fund road construction with the gasoline tax going forward, right? Um, so so I you know it it's not just the pandemic that we have to account for and rethinking how local governments are structured. Uh, you know, for if, if the topic's sort of broad, what are the what's the future of local government? Um, you know, the 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 technology and the operating environment of local governments. Um, we we can't always keep doing things the way that we've always done them and expect to be successful. Yeah. So so I was just gonna one last thing on this is just the. You know, the issue of economic development, and, and I guess the the real question is, can everyone live in Austin? I don't know. Um, maybe no. everyone can. They're trying. They're really trying. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's remarkable. Um, I mean, the fact that cities ultimately end up, you know, whatever we're saying with regard to their state governments and how state governments treat them, ultimately, at the end of the day, they're competing with each other for for revenue, for investment, for population, for whatever it might be. I mean, local governments in cities, counties, whatever it might be, um, cooperate when it makes sense, collaborate, but they are ultimately competitive uh, with one another. And, and, and I, think that's, I think that's just, oh, at the end of the day, you, know, you all were talking about management versus finance. I guess I was gonna say policy design or something like that. I mean, at the end of the day, um, I think we really are in, in line for some significant changes in the local government dynamic or the local government environment or whatever whatever we call it the place it's places are changing how's that for pithy? yeah i like it i think and i like meaningless, it mean, utterly meaningless but you know i put my business card well and and you know our technologies as rob uh, i feel like rob was throwing me a bone there you know our technologies are also changing where the different power is at the policy design stage mm -hmm. right so how we build institutions and then what that means for uh, what decisions are made on the ground is changing. Um, uh, take unemployment insurance as one of the examples that Rob mentioned earlier. You know, we had we used to have 
state workforce agencies where people went to go apply for benefits. Now it's all done automatic on a phone or uh, online. That changes some of the ways in which the decisions are made and who has who has power. Yeah, I mean, it changes when, you know, who wins and who loses and all these things. It's just an interesting question. Um, so I, I, I also just uh, add on to, to Ann's last point that right, local governments aren't as static as a lot of people think. Mm -hmm. um, they, they do change, they die, they merge, they they shrink. Uh, and so, so when we're talking about uh, the changing environments, it's not a given that every city comes out that on the other end. Um, and, and if they do, sometimes they don't look anything like the city that, that they went in, right? Um, and so, and so I, I think um, there may be more of that coming, um, and we may see more sort of uh, rethinking what local governments are successful, why they're successful, and then uh, you know ha having um, some that that don't make it. <laughs> well, <laughs> It makes me, uh, Greg, that sounds like uh, war in your field. <laughs> <laughs> Gruber is talking about governments just merging and disappearing, stroke of some contract pens. I think that's a different connotation in the international affairs arena, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> All right, team. Well, I want to let uh, Ann and Greg get home. Uh, it's now at uh, 7 o'clock Central Time, so... It's always a pleasure to have the two of you on. Um, gives me some extra laughs and some uh, public service administration teamwork over here to, to gang up on Greg. And um, so it's a, it's a pleasure. We'll be back in two weeks, uh, back with uh, international affairs uh, professor, Matthias Portner. We'll be talking about Latin American politics. So we'll have that. And the actual date for that is March. 22nd at 6 p.m. will be our next live recording. And Anne, do y'all have any live recording dates for when your podcast is going live or anything we can share on our way out? Um, I was told by Sue Robertson that it's gone live or it's gone something. It's been launched. That was the word she used. That was launched. The launch. So right. I don't know. We're in the stratosphere somewhere. Um, I think the first one is uh, later this week. Uh, it'll be Grace Kelly, who's um, Legislative Director for Representative Gary Van Deaver. I think she's the first. Um, and I think it's, you know, then the following week they have one or two more and then a few more. And you so, got me all excited. I thought it was going to be Grace Kelly, the former. Uh, she, she, she hears that on occasion. It depends, it's, it's really a function of the age of anything. So, yeah. yeah. A lot of people would not know that there was another Grace Kelly. Uh, they, should, they should watch To Catch a Thief or Rear Window. Yeah, I, I, I will do that. I will do that. <laughs> to, fin to finish the plug, I think you can find out more at bush.mu.edu backslash legislature. Uh, oh, legislature. There you go. All right. Yeah, well, ignore the intro. Skip. It's a you know, one minute and nine seconds. It's embarrassing. Just skip it. Go to the good stuff. So, so watch um, the first minute on repeat is what uh, yeah, right. your answer. I should say there's some great photographs of previous capstones. They, it's just wonderful to see those folks again. It's it's just cool. And uh, awesome. so the photographs are worth it. Um, right. But yeah, uh, the old gallery is it. Yeah, let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Support our fellow uh, uh, Bush School podcast efforts, and we will see you all in two weeks. Thank you so much. It's good to see you all. Thanks, Ann. Thanks, Rob. Right. Thanks, everybody. Right. It's been fun. Thanks, As usual, it's been fun. <laughs> <laughs>